Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. We took a little bit of a break this past summer to rethink our First Freedom Podcast, but we're I'm really happy that we're starting it up again um, with kind of a new focus. We're going to be focusing on, on books. We talked about this in our committee that we want to um, talk about books that we think are important and helpful. Um, and so we're going to be talking with um, authors like we are today. Um, but we'll also be talking with some of our own bishops and committee members about books that have influenced their own thinking about religious liberty, uh, but also topics that are adjacent to religious liberty, like the church's mission in a secular society, topics like that. So I'm really excited about kind of the new direction we're taking the podcast, um, and I'm especially happy to kick it off in, in this way today with our guest. Um, we're going to be talking about, uh, or we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Philip Munoz about his most recent book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses. It's published in 2022 by the University of Chicago Press. And I just say this book does a really fantastic job of laying out uh, what the founders said while noting where we can be confident about what they thought and also being honest about where we kind of have to speculate or construct the meaning of, of, of what the Constitution is saying. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Munoz is the Tocqueville Professor of Political Science and concurrent professor of law at the University of Notre Dame. He is the founding director of Notre Dame Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. His scholarship has been cited numerous times in church-state Supreme Court opinions, uh, most recently by Justice Alito in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, and by both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas in Espinoza v. Montana, both cases that our committee uh, took a, a definitely took an interest in. So uh, really, Dr. Munoz, I'm really excited about having you on for this, uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So why, just to start us off, you know, what are you trying to do with this book? What, what's kind of its aim? Who are you trying to reach or what's the audience for this book? Sure. Well, I'll say, I guess the book tries to do uh, three things. Um, the first thing it does is it, is it offers a constitutional history. Uh, uh, what, what is the original meaning of the First Amendment religion clauses? Uh, what can we know about it? What, what can we not know about that meaning? And it's actually the middle section of the book. And that, that history is primarily for law students and lawyers and um, Supreme Court justices uh, who really dig into the weeds, weeds on our constitutional history. Uh, I spent a lot, a lot of time on the drafting of the First Amendment and how it came, came about. Um, historians, or those interested in history, I think would find that part particularly interesting. I should have my students don't find that part particularly interesting, but <laughs> <laughs> historians might. Uh, the second thing the book tries to do is um, explain the founders' political philosophy. Uh, the founders spoke about religious liberty as a natural right. Uh, in fact, they used the term an unalienable natural right. So why do we have natural rights and what's an inalienable natural right as opposed to an alienable natural right? So the, the second thing the book does is try to explain the founders' political philosophy of natural rights and in general in the political philosophy of religious freedom in particular. Actually, that's the first part of the book. I'm going a little bit out of order here. And then the third thing the book uh, tries to do is um, say, look, if we followed the founders' political philosophy of natural rights, what would that lead to 
uh, in terms of jurisprudence, what results would it produce? How would these general philosophical principles, uh, when applied to specific legal cases, what would that look like? And I try to lay out, you know, uh, the theory, uh, merge the theory with practice and using real cases and uh, speculate or give my account on what I what results would be uh, produced. And then at the very end, I try to say, look, this is, at least from my point of view, these are the advantages or what might be good about the founder's approach. And here are some disadvantages, too. Um, so for those interested in American political history and constitutional history, uh, political American political thought, legal issues with church and state, uh, that's who the, the audience is for. Uh, that is the audience of the book. I mean, it's not exactly a page turner, but I tried to make it uh, accessible to uh, you know, the reading public and anyone who would be interested in these matters. Dr. Minaz, maybe this isn't a quick question, but the first thing that comes to my mind is given how important religious liberty is and why was this not, why was it an amendment historically? Like why was oh, yeah, it no, not included in the constitution itself? No, no, that's actually a wonderful question and a very commonsensical question. Um, the story here is we have to remember that, um, when the founders wrote the constitution, the national government was only the national government. It wasn't meant to do everything. And in fact, religious liberty and most of our protection of our, our natural rights were really left to the state governments. And in fact, it's the state documents from the founding era states that I really focus on. Uh, the argument was when we were creating the constitution was look, uh, the, the federal government's not gonna have much, to, if anything, to do with religion. Uh, it's, you know, the, the federal government is going to raise an army, make uh, regulations for interstate commerce and commerce with foreign states. But most of what we talk, think of as civil rights or, or rights protection, that's really a state level issue. And, sh and church state matters were really state issues, a state map, sorry, issues for state governments at the time of the founding. And so the Bill of Rights originally only limited the national government. Now, let me say one more thing here. But it, most states had their own declarations of rights. And at the state level, that's where we see the language of inalienable natural rights. Uh, so the real interesting documents are actually state documents uh, of the founding era. I have a couple of follow up questions, but maybe it's the uh, so it's kind of hard um, to decide which one to ask now. But maybe the, the first one I'm interested in is. Um, about the that political philosophy piece, can you? I, I know it's it's a lot to sum up. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to recite the entire book um, because we want people to buy it. But um, <laughs> but can you give us a brief kind of rundown of what is what was the founders' political philosophy? I mean, what would you? How would you summarize? Yeah, no, no, no. What were the reasons for religious liberty. For it's a great it's a great question, and you know, really part of the book and. Uh, the, Chapter two, I think, for me is particularly important because this is my attempt to state as clearly as I could, uh, hopefully clearly enough for everyone to uh, find it accessible. Uh, you know, what's the basic political philosophy of the Declaration of Independence and our of 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 our government? And that's political philosophy of natural rights. First thing to note about natural rights is rights are natural. That is, they come from our Creator. You know, we're endowed by our Creator. Um, by our natural rights. Rights don't come from the state, at least natural rights like religious liberty don't come from the state. The state exists to protect our rights, not to grant us rights. And that, that lesson is so fundamental um, and it's uh, relatively easy to see that that was the founders' understanding, but it's an understanding that we've lost today. We tend to think that 
Um, we give the government power and the government gives us rights. That's not actually how it is in truth or what the founders thought. The truth of the matter is we have natural rights. We create a government to secure our rights. The rights exist before the government. Okay, so that's the first lesson I would say. Second thing is um, the founders use this peculiar language of uh, inalienable natural rights. Well, what's an inalienable natural right? There are alienable natural rights and inalienable natural rights. And to understand that distinction, you have to understand the founder's social compact theory. That's their theory of government. That's a little bit more complicated, but let me just put it this way. The founders believed in limited government. Some of us still believe in limited government. Limited government is different than small government. You know, small government is just government not doing as much, you know, lower taxes, less spending, et cetera. Limited government is the idea that there are some things that government simply can never do. Government lacks authority to do certain things. Why does government lack authority over certain subject matters? Well, because we never gave it such authority. We don't give government authority over our inalienable rights of religious liberty. That is, we don't alienate authority over those rights to the government. So it's trying to understand with, with precision, what exactly do we retain? What, what power does government not have? If that seems very abstract, let me just give a, give a simple example, if you don't mind. Um, think about professional licensing. I mean, to do almost anything, you have to get a license, right? To be a doctor, you have to have a medical license. To, uh, to cut hair, you have to have a cosmetology license. To, to teach in a grade school, you have to have an education license. To practice law, you have to have a law license. We could go on and on and on. I mean, ironically, the one thing you don't need a license to do is be a college professor. <laughs> think, think about, so we license almost everything. To, to fish, you got to get a fishing license. To ma get married, you got to get a marriage license. To preach... Pastors don't have to get a preaching license. And why not? And the simple answer is because government doesn't get to dictate who can be or who cannot be a preacher. Government doesn't have that power to issue preaching license because we never gave it that power. And we never gave it that power because um, authority over our religious exercises, we never turn over to government. And we, we can't turn that over to government because it's an inalienable natural right. One question that I have is kind of a follow-up to that, and um, this isn't really something your book gets into, so I hope it's okay that I ask it, but it's probably something, a question you have you have faced, and you probably, maybe even some of your own colleagues at your school at Notre Dame. Um, does one need to agree with the political philosophy of the founders in order to, to be faithful to the Constitution or to be a good American citizen? Because, you know, a lot of these things are sort of in question these days, it seems like. Um, what do you say to those who who would disagree with with some aspect of the political philosophy of the founders? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's lots of very interesting and thoughtful uh, Catholic intellectuals in particular who are critical of the founders. Um, most of these fellows are my friends. Um my main critique of them is actually um, is that they don't actually understand the political philosophy of the founding. People are quick to condemn something they don't understand. Uh, so first, we need to understand the political philosophy of the founding. Um, you can't just read Leo XIII's critique of liberalism and think that critique applies to America. You have to understand America on its own terms. 
I actually think when if you do understand the political philosophy of the, the American founding, it's much more compatible with Catholic social thought than people understand, than Catholic, leading Catholic intellectuals understand. So one of my first tasks is, is simply to explain the founders' political theory. Founders' political theory is, I mean, Alexander Hamilton says, uh, natural rights are part of the natural law. The natural law limits natural rights. Uh, the founders are natural law thinkers. And they're not Catholic thinkers per se, but at least I think that the, the, the principles of the Declaration of Independence properly understood are perfectly compatible, or at least, um, let me be more modest, um, you can make an argument they're compatible with uh, the rich tradition of Catholic uh, thought about church and state and um, the proper role of government. Many of the Catholic critiques of the of the founding misunderstand the, the our founding principles. I agree with the critiques, and the, I certainly recognize that they are critiquing something that we American political thought has generated, but it's not the founders' political thought. You know, you you talk about how there's different. The founding is not like this monolithic type thing for one thing that there's different groups involved different different views being represented you talk about these different ends of a spectrum when we're talking about religious liberty about restrictive republicanism versus expansive liberalism it seems to me that most of the so much focus is on ex, those that you classify as expansive liberals um, the restrictive republican piece of it as as a dimension often doesn't seem to come out as much um in yeah, yeah, no, that's an, it's a nice observation. So it is, it's a, so two points here. First, the first couple of chapters of the book talk about the founders' agreement, and then I have a chapter on how the founders disagreed about church mm -hmm. and state. And the, the, the basic formulation here is that the founders agreed about the natural right principles, that we have a natural right to religious liberty, an inalienable natural right. All the founders agreed to that. But how does that cash out? You know, what, what does that natural right limit government uh, prevent government from doing. And here there was disagreements. And this is something Catholics, Catholic intellectuals should understand easily, right? The, the first principles of the natural law are relatively clear and, you know, fundamental. But the further you move away from those first principles and you start to apply them in concrete cases, then um, things become a little bit more murky. And so all the founders agreed that you had a natural right to, to worship according to conscience, that government couldn't prohibit worship as such or prescribe worship as such. To what extent could government support um, the religious character of the people through funding of religion? Well, here the founders started to, to disagree. They, they all agreed that uh, successful democratic government needed a moral people. They disagreed whether, and, and, and they all agreed actually that um, morality required religion. Where they disagreed was does religion require the support of government? Some said, like George Washington and Patrick Henry, look, we need morality. Religion is necessary for morality. Therefore, government should support religion. And there's all sorts of legislation from the founding era that does that. Others said, well, yeah, democratic government needs a moral people and a moral people is uh, helped uh, fostered by religion, but religion doesn't actually need the support of government. In fact, the support of government is, tends to be bad for religion. And there you have James Madison and, and Thomas Jefferson. I mean, that's a question we still debate about today. I mean, my Catholic, my kids go to a, a newly created a Catholic classical school. And 
as it was being formed, a debate about the parents was, you know, should we try to get government funds? You know, um, we all want a great Catholic classical education for our kids. Uh, in the long run, would the school be better if it received government money and could do more, you know, easier and more quickly? Or in the long run, would the school actually be better if it didn't get government funds? This, this is a practical question that we disagree about today. It's a practical question that the founders disagreed about in their time. Glad you brought that up because I think uh, that's one of my questions as I'm listening to you is there are plenty of people now who say, well, you know, what the founders said and thought at that time, well, isn't there some flexibility? Didn't they build into the constitution amendments and all of that? The ability to adapt to your culture, to, for us to adapt to things over time. I mean, the views, of course, they, they're, they're basing this on rights, on natural law, but at the same time, um, there are those today who say in this, you know, in these modern discussions, like, well, but that's not how things are now. That was what it was like 300 years ago. So mm -hmm. I don't know what my question is, but like, could you comment on like, how, how did, what was their, what the founders thinking of like over time, how religious liberty would play out? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, honestly, um, it's, uh, the answer to that question is pretty simple. The founders said there are there are certain few things that are off the table for democratic majorities to do. And those are those jurisdictional limitations that I talked about before. Like the people can't regulate, they can't license ministers. Government doesn't have that authority, right? So certain, the founders took a few things off the table, but everything else is left to ordinary democratic politics. Or really, and the founders are not really democratic. I mean, they're democratic in a sense, but they're really Republican. That is, you know, should we fund schools, religious schools, Catholic schools, private schools? I mean, the founders' approach is that's a practical question. We leave it to the people to decide through their elective representatives. The founders are much more democratic, or as I say, Republican. That is, they turn these questions of prudence uh, over to the people through their representative uh, institutions. That's how we adapt over time. Through Republican government, Democrat, the, the people governing themselves. Uh, we've moved away from that. You know, we have much more an oligarchic government that's governed by, uh, uh, you know, a ruling class of lawyers. But that wasn't the founder's design. So the flexibility that you, you mentioned or the, you know, adjusting for the times is built in the system in that the people themselves govern. You know, in light of principles they understand and in light of their interests at the time. I did think it was also just interesting reading the book. You mentioned that we still have these debates, just just how contemporary some of the debates they're having amongst themselves, the Federalists and Anti-Federalists or the Republicans and Liberals or however you want to, the di different groups and different sides echo so many of the that these are just kind of perennial things that where there, there's going to be tension sometimes between when it comes to religious liberty and church and the government and, and also and families even to some extent but there's a bit of that that this constant kind of working these things out you know i'm not a professional historian my phd is in political science not in history but i do a lot of historical work and what is amazing is um you know we think we're special and that we've progressed so far but Basically, we argue about the same things that they were arguing about. These questions are perennial. What's, what's interesting is they debated things on a much more philosophical level than we tend to today. 
Uh, one of the reasons is um, there's lots of reasons to study the founders. I mean, there are founders, at least if you're an American, it's our constitution. And if you think the original meaning is important, it's important to know the original meaning. But also, they were just very smart individuals. And they, their debates were at a very high level. You know, it's the same reason we read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, they, they really argued from first principles. And so they can help us think more clearly and more deeply. Uh, that's a real reason to study the founders. Mm-hmm. One of your claims that um, that is kind of a key claim, it, it kind of pops up throughout the text, is this idea, and, and you've written the, about this in, in other venues as well, this idea that the founders did not envision religious liberty as necessarily entailing exemptions from generally applicable laws. And, you know, this has been kind of an ongoing issue in in American public life, um, the Employment Division versus Smith, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, this is often kind of what people what religious liberty debates sort of center around now, it seems like, is this idea that of exemptions, religious liberties about getting exemptions. So um, why did the founders not think that religious liberty entails exemptions? Yeah, sure, sure. So, well, we have to, um, we, we need to be precise here. There is uh, what the Constitution requires, uh, what's constitutionally mandated, uh, and then what politics allows. The founders' position in a nutshell is there's no, no constitutional right to exemptions from religiously burdensome laws, as long as those laws are otherwise valid. But the people through their elective representatives can legislate discretionary exemptions. So exemptions are um, not unconstitutional, but they're not constitutionally required. And let me use the example from the founding era. It's still a contemporary example as well. Um, Quakers at the time of the founding, pacifists, you know, conscientious objectors is the category we would talk about today. But Quakers at the time of the founding said that they they couldn't participate in military affairs. They're pacifists for religious reasons. And so we got to think through, well, how did the founders deal with the Quakers? And actually, they're pretty clear. The founders said is there's no constitutional right. It's not a natural right to be exempt from conscription laws, from, from military service. But in practice, we'll give you an exemption. Um, now, we got to think through the principles here. Why is there no constitutional right uh, or moral right even to an exemption from military service? Well, what is the political community? I mean, the very first thing the political community is, it's a mutual defense pact. I won't harm you, you don't harm me, and we'll fight together against those who would harm us, right? I'll respect your rights, you respect my rights. We'll form a government to protect our rights, especially, you know, against others. Well, part of that is we're willing to fight for the survival of the regime, of the community. And you can't really be a full member of the community if you want all the protections, but aren't willing to incur the obligations. The Quakers, the founders would say, they don't have to be a part of the community, but an obligation of citizenship is you fight. The Quakers have a natural right not to be join the community, but if you join the community, you have an obligation to fight. Well, the Quakers say, but we can't fight. And that, that becomes a practical matter, right? Well, if you're not willing to fight, and, and we think you can be good members of the community, even if you don't fight, you can do other things, but you don't have a, a right not to fight. 
because that's an essential duty of citizenship. And rights and duties are reciprocal. Right? So that's how the founders did in, in practice, the, you know, the, the Quakers were offered alternatives. I will say the Quakers didn't always accept these alternatives. And that was a real problem. Right? And George Washington was pretty clear to the Quakers, you're not doing your duties as citizens. And if we really push it, and, and people don't like to do this, but if we really push it, what George Washington would say is, you have an obligation to fight to protect your families from those who would be tyrannical over them. That is a part of the natural law and is the right of the political community to protect its interests according to the natural law. It is deficient that you don't fight. I mean, that's the real underlying teaching. Um, the Catholic tradition can understand this because we see the harmony of faith and reason, that there are not obligations of faith opposed to our understanding of the obligations that we, we reason to. Faith and reason are harmonious. The whole founder's system is based on the, harmo the harmony of faith and reason. Right? This, is, this is just to say that the divine law does not contradict the natural law. The role of politics is, to, is in, the, in the realm of the natural law, to put it in you know, terms that will be familiar to Catholics. Right? And part of the natural law is you fight to protect the innocent when they're unjustly attacked. So there is a critique of the Quakers. So it's a practical question. It's not a constitutional question. Mm -hmm. There is no constitutional right to be exempt from otherwise valid laws. That's the natural rights tradition. Well, it seems though like the, there's a lot riding on that part about valid laws. I mean, what you just said is you're in that example, you know, the right of the political community to defend itself is um, it it's a part of the natural law. So does part of this hinge on the the laws that that a group is seeking exemptions from would have to be comport with the natural law i mean that's you know mm. what i'm saying like if, if yeah, yeah sure sure yeah so, so there's two senses in which a law is valid one is that it's duly enacted by the um by those who have authority to make the law and then it's promulgated right the other so i mean, just think of uh the four characteristics of law according to thomas aquinas right uh, it's made by a proper authority is one of the characteristics and it's promulgated, right? So the procedural aspects of law. The other aspects of a valid law, what makes a law a law, is that it's an ordinance of reason for the common good. So what happens when we have a duly enacted law by the competent authority that is not reasonable and not for the common good? Well, it's a law, you know, it's passed, but it's a bad law. And what do we do with bad laws? And our contemporary understanding of religious liberty advanced by most people is, well, if laws are bad and, we're and they impinge on our religion, religious people deserve an exemption from the law. And the older understanding was, well, you shouldn't pass bad laws. And if you do, you should try to repeal them, right? To put it in more constitutional terms, the constitution isn't designed to protect us from every bad law. There's lots of bad laws that are constitutional. The Constitution is actually to set up a structure that works against passing bad laws. So if Catholics or anyone else thinks the law is bad, right? If, if one opens a business, one shouldn't have to buy birth control for anyone. The solution is to either prevent that law from being passed or overturn it once it is passed not to get an exemption from it. If the law is bad for Catholics, 
it's probably bad for everyone. It's actually an ordinance of the common good to fight to repeal the law, not to get an exemption from it. To get an exemption from a law is just to say, well, it shouldn't apply to me, but it can, can apply to you. It's actually not protecting the common good. I actually think that that is a good explanation for why the USCCB has taken some of the positions that it has when 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 we've been encouraged to support these laws that as long as we can get exemptions for ourselves and, and you're probably aware of this something that a lot of people are advocating for these things like well as long as we get exemptions we still will promote these sorts of laws and we're sort of like that doesn't make kind of the way you just put it like well why would we promote something our, our, we're not just doing this out of our self-interest. We're supposed to be promoting legislation that we think is good for the common good. So it wouldn't make any sense to promote legislation that then we would seek an exemption from. There's something very odd by saying, yes, we're in favor of this law as long as it doesn't apply to us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the position of oligarchy, to be honest. And, you know, James Madison talks about this and, and, um, in the Federalist Papers, I think this is Federalist 57, if I'm researching it correct. Uh, the, the, the discussion in Federalist 57, they're talking about the House of Representatives and um, the critics of the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists said, look, you know, this, this government's going to be tyrannical, it's oligarchic, there's too few representatives. And Madison here in Federalist 57 is discussing, you know, how do you make sure that the, the members of the House, you know, which is the most democratic branch, you know, really only pass laws uh, for the common good? not for particular narrow interests. And Madison says the surest way to get good laws, laws that really foster the common good, are that the laws must be applied against those who make them, that is those who pass the law, and their friends. That is the equal application of the law to everyone is the surest guarantee to make sure that only good laws are passed. If you, if you can't apply a law to everyone, injustice, you got to think, why are we passing this law? And in fact, even those who advocate for exemptions say, well, the way to get more laws is to, uh, to allow exemptions from them. That facilitates the lawmaking practice. As if more law is better law. That certainly was not the founder's understanding. It's not a commonsensical understanding. Actually, all you want is really good laws. Okay, that's a sort of political science or institutional perspective. Another perspective is, this is more of a classical perspective, uh, also a commonsensical uh, perspective. The law always norms. The law always teaches what is moral and, and immoral. The law sets the norms for a community. You can't advocate for laws that you think are unjust. You can't say, well, well we can have this law, whatever it is, uh, but don't apply it to us because you're conceding the moral high ground when you do that. And if you think, if you think you're going to survive when the law is against you, if only you have an exemption, that's never going to work in the long run. It is a, it is a recipe for eventual persecution. And to be honest, it's a recipe for your, your children or your grandchildren to hate you. Exemptions do not work in the long run. Well, I wonder to kind of to close us out to you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you finish up your book by talking about 
how your approach would play out in a practical way in terms of, um, you know, you kind of imagine some recent cases and how your approach would, you know, how it would play out if, if it were taken. So I wonder, would you, would you mind like sharing a couple of examples of that? Because I think people may be wondering like, well, what's, what, what's the end result of all that? What's the upshot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, good. I, I appreciate you asking the question because, um, yeah, just <laughs> I laugh because um, when I finished what it what became chapter seven of the book, I thought I was done. And then I, I was rereading it. I was like, oh, no, I got to write two more chapters here. And the last two chapters are, well, what is what does this all mean? And, and you know, contemporary terms and how does it all cash out? Um, Maybe so I appreciate a future judge asking. will listen to this. A future <laughs> yeah, judge yeah, will yeah. listen to this and they're in. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no pressure. No pressure. No, no, no. So I appreciate because I like I put a lot of work into those last two chapters. So the the cash value of the book um, is it turns out that the Constitution is much more democratic than we think. And what do I mean by that? It, I echoed this earlier. Most decisions are on church state decisions are left to the people through their elective representatives. So, you know, can we fund can government dollars go to private religious schools that teach religion? You know, honestly, the Constitution is silent about this. If the people want to do it, it's fine. If the people don't want to do it, it's fine. Or it's, it's constitutional. I shouldn't say it's fine. The Constitution really authors self-government. So the, the people have to advocate for their positions and explain why Funding of Catholic schools or religious private religious schools advances the common good. If the people think it does, they can do it. And if they think it, it doesn't foster the common good, they, they don't have to do it. In practice, that means the whole edifice of the wall of separation, for the most part, is a judicial creation. It's not, a const it's not consistent with the Constitution's meaning. Now, let me point to a couple counterintuitive examples. What about prayer in public school, which is actually very popular? You know, when when it was overturned, most people were in favor of prayer in public schools. I actually argue that for the same reason that the state doesn't have authority to license ministers, it doesn't have authority to write prayers for school children. It's just not a competence that was given to the state. The state's not in the business of writing prayers or instructing us how to pray. It's not because prayer is unimportant or the school children shouldn't be praying. It's actually because prayer is so important, it's committed to churches, to church authority, not to the public authorities. At least that was the founder's view, not to state authority. The state limits itself out of respect for the higher authority, higher authority of the church. So uh, you could fund religion and religious schools, one result, no prayer in public schools. That is no government-authored prayers, government-written prayers. School boards, school officials, teacher unions can't be writing prayers as students are then uh, uh, forced to say. The other counterintuitive example we've already talked about is um, most everyone think everyone today thinks religious liberty means exemptions for religious individuals from otherwise valid laws. Um, that's actually an invention of the modern Supreme Court starting in 1963. Um, it's not a constitutional right. We, the people, can legislate exemptions for individuals or groups um, if we think um, that's necessary. The rule of law is not perfect, and sometimes exemptions are needed. 
example of the Quakers, they were legislated exemptions, but it's not a constitutional right. In general, let me just say one more thing. In general, the uh, outcome of the book is the people through their elective representatives will have more authority on church state matters. Judges and lawyers will have less authority. It turns out judges and lawyers don't like the book so much because of that. <laughs> really? <laughs> that's, that's too bad. I I really loved reading it. You said it what you said earlier it's not a page turner, but I actually thought it it's um I mean it's a scholarly work. It's not like necessarily a popular work, but I I actually thought it was I had several pleasant afternoons sitting on my porch uh with my cigar uh reading reading through this. So I thought it actually read very well. Uh, okay, wait, when when the second edition comes out, I want you to put that blurb on the back. Okay. On the back cover. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. you were great porch well, and, reading with a cigar. Yeah, it was. After listening to this fascinating discussion, I might purchase it myself. Maybe for well, my husband to read <laughs> first. But well, you know, it really pleases me immensely. Um Aaron, that you that you found it that way, and that Mary, that you might be persuaded to to take a look at the book, uh, because I did write. I wrote it for citizens. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of scholarly material, but I put all that in the footnotes, which means it's easy to overlook. I wanted to do what scholars are supposed to do and engage other scholars, but it's not a book about that. That's that's in the footnotes, and the, you know the scholars like the footnotes. Um, but I really I wrote it for citizens, for the reading public. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really tried hard to make it accessible. And uh, to the extent it succeeded in that, uh, in your opinion, I, I'm very grateful for you uh, saying well, that. And I'll just note one one part that I really enjoyed. Uh, th there are a number of parts like I mentioned earlier that I like seeing how these debates played out um, in the earlier parts of the book. But I also really liked on this question of how things would turn out in different cases. Um, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I work, I staff the Committee for Religious Liberty. So I'm, you know, I know a little bit about some of these major Supreme Court cases. Uh, I really loved how you had some of these different cases, the little thing about what the issue was, and then you showed how how the justices, um, you know, what that how they what their opinions were, and then how your approach, what 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 you think the opinion would be based on your approach. Um, that was just kind of interesting to see how your approach really um, that it's that it's not ideological because I'm like I think there were some times that your your approach would have agreed with Justice Ginsburg. There were some times that it agreed with Justice Scalia um, and, and and then different points in between. And so I, I really I those I, those were some of my favorite little charts to like go through and look at and say, like, OK, so where's. How does this work out against, you know, Kennedy and um, or Scalia or O'Connor or whatever? So that that part was kind of was really interesting to me, too. For yeah, yeah. OK, well, I I'm glad you I'm glad you think so. Um, the uh, that's a kind way to put things uh, the, the way other people put uh, <laughs> the way my editor put it was, uh, well, no one will agree with you. <laughs> everyone will find something to dislike well well maybe that's true maybe but it just is what it is I'll, I'll say one other thing here um a while ago i i just realized as a scholar uh, my job is it's really in this book is not to advocate for the founders though i you know i'm partial to them but really just to try to explain look these are their principles uh, if we apply their principles to these cases these are the results 
That's my job is just to explain that. You let the chips fall where they may, and then we can evaluate them. And that's the last chapter. You know, I, I'm critical of some some results I don't like, but my job as a scholar is not to advocate for results I like. It's just to present the historical material and the philosophical material as I see it and just explain it as clearly as I can. And I can have my opinion about it, but um, my opinions are my opinions, but the scholarship is the scholarship. And I really just try to let the scholarship uh, be successful on its own terms and, mm -hmm. and not to win favor with any group, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor Munoz, I've really enjoyed um, this conversation. I've enjoyed uh, working through your book. I really appreciate the all the work that you put into it. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much yeah. for having me. Thank you. And we've been talking with Dr. Philip Munoz of the University of Notre Dame about his most recent book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding. Uh, it's a deeply researched, informative work, and I highly recommend it. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for listening to this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm -hmm.